Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 to 32. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of their ignorance. That is them due to the hardening in their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on a new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here with you on this Lord's Day. As you've heard read, we're in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. I love it if you opened your Bible to that passage. You could follow along. And let me start this way. There used to be a show on the Learning Channel, TLC, called What Not to Wear and people with bad fashion sense would be nominated by their friends to be on the show and two experts would intervene. And so they would go through the person's old wardrobe and throw out their old clothes. And sometimes it was very hard for the person to part with articles of clothing. And you might know what that is like. You know, that t-shirt or that sweatshirt you've worn since 2008. It doesn't really fit. It's faded, but it's comfortable. You like it. You would never think about throwing it out. And so the guests on the show, they would complain. Sometimes when the hosts weren't looking, they would go and try to fish, you know, their old clothes out of the garbage can and sneak them back into their wardrobe. And in this show, the host would give the person money and fashion principles to buy a whole new wardrobe. And they would teach them to think differently about size and style and what fits. Uh, they would get this makeover and they'd, they'd emerge from the experience looking a lot better, 
more confident. In some ways, they were barely recognizable, right? This is what looks good on you. This is how you should dress. Don't go back to your old way of living. This is a whole new you. We get that idea. Now at this point, in the letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, Paul is doing his own version of what not to wear. He's going to tell followers of Jesus to take off certain attitudes and actions and put on their new self in Christ. He's going to say, now that you've turned from sin and trusted in Jesus, you're a new person. Live into the newness by taking off all that belongs to your old life. And listen, whatever season we're in, this is what God is always asking of us. It's what God is doing when life feels hard or easy. It's what God is doing when we feel lonely or deeply connected. It's what God is doing in school or out of school, whether we're single or married. It's what God is doing whether our marriage is thriving or limping. It's what God is doing whether our career is taking off or it feels stalled. Because God is always telling us to take off the old way of living and to put on our new self. So let's dive into the text and let's walk through it together. And it starts in a very bleak fashion describing our old way of life and then Paul's going to contrast it to this new way of life we're called to lean into. And so this is verse 17. So I tell you this and I insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So as followers of Jesus, Paul insists that we must live differently. He doesn't suggest, he doesn't give us a mild nudge in a direction. He insists in the Lord based on our new identity in Christ. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. And here he refers to Gentiles, non-Jews, not in an ethnic sense as he does elsewhere in the letter in chapter 2, but in a moral sense to mean those who have not yet encountered Jesus and decided to follow him. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Futility doesn't mean we were unintelligent. It doesn't mean we were uneducated. Futility doesn't mean a lack of brilliance. Some of the most brilliant people I learn from and read don't believe in God. Futility can mean purposelessness, or incapable of producing results. And here futility needs to be understood to mean that our unaided reason, our thinking, is not capable on its own of producing true knowledge of God, complete knowledge of God, that sin has distorted our thinking, and to know God as he truly is, God must reveal himself to us. Apart from that revelation, apart from that unveiling, apart from God pulling back the curtain so his light can shine in, our thinking is futile. Then scripture says, they're darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God. 
that God is the source of truth. To separate ourselves from God is to head in the direction of futility in thinking. God is the source of life. To separate ourselves from God is to head in the direction of death. God is the source of light. To separate ourselves from God is to move in the direction of darkness and to reason in the dark about life and its purposes is really to embrace a deep form of ignorance that scripture says is due to the hardness of heart. And maybe even as you're listening to this, you just feel like this is a bleak description and it's pretty offensive and that's true, but I'm just the mailman delivering the mail. And so don't shoot the mailman. This is what Paul's saying. And here he talks about the hardness of our hearts. And the word hardness can literally mean petrified. And so the classic biblical example is Pharaoh. Many of us have heard that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, which is true. But we neglect the fact that Pharaoh first hardened his own heart. And so if you know the Bible or you've seen Disney's Prince of Egypt, you know the story. Moses confronts Pharaoh and tells him to release his Hebrew slaves so they can worship God. And Pharaoh says these words, Exodus 5 verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. God then, as the story continues, hands Pharaoh over to his rebellion and hardens him in the direction he was already heading. God did not put a desire in Pharaoh's heart that didn't already exist there. Pharaoh hardened his heart and then God handed him over to his refusal. That Pharaoh had evidence for God's existence and God's desires. But he suppressed that evidence. He refused to acknowledge it or weigh it properly or act in accordance with it and free the Israelites from slavery. As such, Pharaoh's thinking stayed futile and his heart was hardened. And we can actually follow in the footsteps of Pharaoh. That there's evidence for God's existence and God has revealed his will to us in Jesus but we suppress the truth. It's almost like we're a child in a pool with a ball and we're pushing the ball under the water only to have it pop back up. And so we push it down again and it pops back up. Maybe you've seen a kid do this in a pool. We push it down again and we pop, the ball pops back up to the surface. That's what we do with the truth. Because the truth of God's existence challenges our autonomy. It means we can't be on the throne of our own lives. It means we might have to admit that the way we've been living maybe for, for years is, is wrong, was futile. It means potentially there's no limit to what God can ask of us. And so we, in our natural state, we suppress the truth of God's existence or we acknowledge God but refashion him into the image of our likes and desires. And the result is a hardened heart, a heart that's petrified when it comes to the truth of God. The truth of God's word ricochets off our hearts like bullets off a rock. And you might be hearing this description and you're new to the Bible and 
Maybe you're new to church. And like I just said, it seems pretty bleak and confrontational, not very Canadian. It's pretty offensive. Um, But I think we can see something similar happen when it comes to human relationships. This process that the Apostle Paul is describing. Track with me. Here's what I mean. When you love someone and they love you, you realize your words and your actions can grieve them. They've made themselves vulnerable to you and vice versa. And if you love them and you're doing something that hurts them and you hear it in their voice and you see it in their tears and in their eyes, eventually you get sick of what you're doing and you stop. Or if you can't stop, you get help to stop because you love this person, right? I really do love you. This is not about rules. It's about this relationship and how much I love you and I don't want to hurt you anymore. And it leads to this profound motivation for change, change that is sometimes painful but deeply transformative. Or you decide you don't want to change and you harden your heart to their hurt and you suppress the truth of how your actions and attitudes are impacting the person. And you double down and you become more insensitive and your thinking towards them is darkened and there's separation and the relationship disintegrates. We've all seen this happen in human relationships and it's tragic when it, uh, when it occurs. And what Paul is saying is that can happen with God. That we can harden our hearts and our thinking becomes darkened and we turn from God and the relationship disintegrates. He's describing this old way of life. And it gets worse before it gets better, if that were possible. But if you look back at the text, it says, having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with the continual lust for more. That hardening our hearts leads to losing sensitivity, which leads to indulging in sensuality with a continual lust for more. And I think it would be a mistake to think of this solely in terms of sexuality. The Greek word translated as continual lust or greed is pleonexia. And the biblical scholar William Barclay writes that pleonexia is the irresistible desire to have what we have no right to possess. It might find expression in the theft of material things. It might be evident in the spirit which tramples on other people to get its own way. It might lead to sexual sin. At its center, it's about self-gratification in all kinds of areas of life. It's about a constant and continual desire for more. It's desire unhinged from the constraining and directing power of God's spirit at work in our lives. And the more we indulge in our sinful nature, the more it requires of us to give and the less we get back. But we keep chasing and chasing and chasing the dopamine hit, the pleasure of the moment. We think it's freedom, but really it's slavery to our basest impulses that eventually takes us much further than we wanted to go. So Paul insists that followers of Jesus can't live that way any longer. And scripture calls us to something different. Look back at the text. Paul writes, You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. 
Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul says, you did not come to know Christ this way. And this is an experiential, relational knowledge that leads to a transformed life. Let me lighten this for a moment. I heard a story of a little girl getting a vaccine shot for H1N1. You might, it was called the swine flu, if you remember that, a long time ago. And the nurse asked this little girl, which arm do you want it in, sweetie? And she replied, mummy's arm. Sadly, life doesn't work that way, and neither does faith. Mom can't take the shot for you, and she can't believe in Jesus for you. That there's this moment in all of our lives where we come to know Christ, who he is, what he has done, and how we're to live in response to his love. This moment where we heard of Jesus and responded. And what's fascinating is that in the Greek, the preposition is not there. It literally reads, surely you heard Jesus. Meaning that through the faithful preaching of Jesus, we hear from Jesus the truth about Jesus. Jesus who came to seek those who were far from God. Jesus who embraced the outcast, healed the sick, restored the sinner, and brought them back into God's family. Jesus who laid his life down for us on the cross. Jesus who gave himself willingly, who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Surely you've heard of Jesus who is God with us and God for us and God who will never forsake us. In light of this Jesus, leave the old life behind, the old way of thinking and relating and put on a new life. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And there is something in us in different seasons of life, depending on circumstances, depending on what's going on inside, where we just want things to be better or different or new. And we live in this therapeutic culture that is enamored with self-help. And what we're talking about here is very different than self-help. And it doesn't matter if you're religious or not, there are things probably when we look at our lives that we want to change. We say, I want to change, I want to grow, I want to break this habit. And that's the impulse behind self-help and our therapeutic culture. And let me just speak into our moment for a second and contrast our therapeutic age, our self-help age with what Paul's talking about here. Because the reality is, I can change without God. Meaning, I can change my habits. I can start exercising. I can become vegan. I can eat differently. I can, I can change. But what's the difference between self-help and living out of this new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness? Let me get very specific for a moment. Some of us struggle with anger. We have a problem with anger. We have a low-grade current of frustration 
under the surface of our lives. And sometimes it erupts and it scares people who love us and who have to be around us. And we know it's corrosive to our mental and physical health and all our relationships. So we decide enough is enough. I'm addicted to anger. I indulge it too much. I have to stop. I need help. And self-help or spirituality that centers around self tells me that the answer for change is within. It puts self at the center of my salvation. It becomes a worship of my will and my ability to change. And my successes or my failures are all on me. If I succeed, it will lead to pride and self-righteousness and give me a platform from which I can look down on others who are not as self-controlled and disciplined as I am. Or if I fail... I just feel like a loser. My successes go to my head. My failures go to my heart. And either way, it becomes a worship of my will and a source of pride. Pride that puffs me up. Pride that inflates my ego. Pride that God opposes. I can beat down my anger by appealing to my pride. You're better than that. You're not the type of guy that does that. We can conquer anger but fuel pride and all we've really done is move to a different corner of our cell but we haven't gotten out of the prison of self. And what's amazing is we've learned in this study throughout Ephesians that, that we're in Christ. That every spiritual blessing is ours through Christ. We've been predestined in love. We've been chosen to be holy and blameless in his sight. We're adopted into God's family, forgiven of our sin. The Holy Spirit lives in us. You know, the, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in our lives. We were dead in sin. God made us alive in Christ. By grace, we've been saved. This is not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in our salvation. To turn from the power of God to our own resources is crazy. It's futile. That's like turning from a hydro dam to AA batteries to power a city. That's like turning from the sun to a candle to provide warmth. Self-help is a poor substitute for tapping into the power of God. Self-help can help. It can add structure and new habits to your life. But self-help turns into self-glorification when we attempt to be our own saviors. And in that, it's a work of the old humanity, not a work of the spirit. In that, it is ultimately futile and it is fundamentally flawed because it finds the solution in the same place as the problem. To use another water analogy, if you're a lifeguard, and someone is drowning, you don't throw more water on him or her. Water is what got them into the problem in the first place. And what gets you into the problem is usually not what gets you out. You don't drink to stay sober and you don't put out a fire with gasoline. If self is my biggest problem, it's not the solution to that problem. It's futile thinking. We need outside intervention. I don't need more of myself. I need more of the Holy Spirit. I don't need to be myself. I need to lean into the new self and the true self that the Holy Spirit is transforming me into. 
the self that is growing to be more like Jesus in all true righteousness, meaning right relatedness between God and others in all true holiness, which means to be set apart for his plans and purposes, not my will, but his be done in and through my life in his world. Surely you've heard about the truth that is in Jesus. So put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And here's what's so beautiful. Over time, people should look at our lives and say, you look different. You know, we've changed. We're aging like fine wine, not unrefrigerated milk. Because we've had a lifetime of listening to the Spirit tell us what not to wear. And we've responded. Age hasn't hardened our hearts to the things of God. Age has softened our hearts to the things of God. We are more malleable and moldable than we were two years ago or ten years ago. And we're looking more and more like Jesus. We're looking more and more like our new self because we've embraced his better way. I have a pastor friend who adopted and he wrote his dissertation on the doctrine of adoption in the New Testament. That through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus were adopted as sons and daughters in God's family. And there was a husband and a wife and they adopted two little girls from the Ukraine. And at the orphanage, the dad told the girls, girls were going home. And little Victoria asked through a translator, forever? And he said, yes, forever. And their faces lit up. And his wife handed them two new denim dresses to put on. And they went to the bathroom and they changed and they left behind every piece of orphanage clothing they'd been wearing. They put off their old orphanage clothes and put on new clothes from their adoptive parents. As the dad said, quote, new clothes, new identity, new home, new security, and a different life. And it's all a picture of the gospel. And what Paul is teaching us here, you've been adopted by God through Christ. You've been filled with the Spirit. You have a new identity. Take off the old and put on the new. Now you're free to become who you were created to be. True freedom is not freedom to do whatever I want. True freedom is freedom to become whoever he wants me to be. And so I wonder, what is God asking you? And what is God asking me to take off and to put away today? It's like our lives are a wardrobe and the Holy Spirit's rifling through the clothes we put on and he's intervening in this moment, telling us what not to wear. And this passage continues with some real specificity around what we're to take off and what we're to put on. And I really do believe that a sermon is this monologue that's meant to create a dialogue between you and the Lord and you and your community. And so listen to the Holy Spirit, even as I read these words that get really specific. Ask God, what are you 
inviting me to take off? And what are you asking me to put on? Verse 25. Therefore, so again, in light of who you are now in Christ, therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. God, are you asking me to take off lies today, to speak truth? For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. I wonder if the Lord is asking us to take off anger today. It might not be outbursts of anger. Maybe it's, it leaks out of us in other ways. It's impatience towards our kids. It's a nitpicky, critical spirit towards our partner. It's frustration that just leaks out on all the other drivers on the road. I wonder if it's pride that God is asking us to take off today. My pride that prevents me from saying sorry. My stubbornness and inability to admit that I'm wrong. Maybe it's how we're using our words. We're fashioning our words into weapons. We're using our words to tear down instead of build up. We're using our words to spread gossip rather than to praise God and bless others. Maybe it's an unwholesome use of our words that God is asking us to take off. He's saying, this doesn't look good on you. This is not how my children are to dress and present themselves to the world. Maybe it's bitterness and resentment towards my parents or former friends or co-workers. Maybe it's bitterness at my church. Paul saying, hey, get rid of all bitterness. It doesn't look good on a child of God. Take it off. What is God asking you to take off today? And then what is God asking you to put on? Scripture tells us to clothe ourselves in compassion and kindness and humility and patience above all these virtues to put on love. Maybe it's kindness towards your boss or your employees. God's asking you to put that on again. Maybe it's patience with your children perseverance in school. Maybe it's humility to receive correction, to say your story. Maybe it's compassion for yourself and others. Maybe it's to forgive as the Lord 
forgave you. And sometimes we hear a message like this about transformation and about change. It's very challenging. And in that moment, we just feel discouraged because in our walk, it feels like one step forward and three steps backwards. And so a heaviness comes on us and it's really discouraging, maybe almost paralyzing. And what we need to put on this morning afresh is the grace and mercy of God, that growth is a process. There are hills and valleys. You might be in a valley struggling, so you need to remind yourself about the grace of God to soften your heart again to his love for you, that conviction is meant to be a catalyst for change, not an invitation to wallow in guilt. And God has more for you, and his love for you is a better motivation for change than any guilt will ever be so maybe you need to take on put on again the kindness of God that leads us to repentance and restoration what is God asking you to put on so that you would reflect Jesus to the world what is God asking us as a community to put on as his children so that we would reflect him in true righteousness and holiness for his glory, our joy, and the good of those around us. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.